Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We will be recapping very quickly chapter 1 and then getting into uh, chapter 2, which is the second address to a son, the second of ten. We'll be looking at that for the majority of the time today. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so if you will open up to chapter 1, and you will recall that at verse 20 through the close of chapter 1, so verses 20 through 33, you have this first poem about wisdom, and wisdom here crying out in the street, raising her voice and crying out in all the public places, chiding the simple ones and inviting them to come to her, um, chiding and exhorting the scoffers or mockers to cease from delighting in their mocking and scoffing and to come and receive her reproof, her counsel and correction. Then you have this threat and warning that if you ignore her counsel and reproof, then when calamity does in fact come, wisdom returns in mirror image what was done unto her. So whereas she was mocked and derided, now when calamity strikes, she will be doing the mocking. You can look at verse 26 for that. And when calamity does come, like a whirlwind, that is quickly and destructively without any warning, and you call out to wisdom, and that day she will not answer. And so there is a rhetoric of warning and very strong admonition to turn, because when you see disaster befalling you, it'll be too late to turn. We took a look at the detailed symmetry here, and also honed in on verse 31, where we see a familiar kind of diagnosis, that those who would have none of wisdom's counsel and despised her reproof will eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. And that's the self curved in on itself. And in a sense, you, what you reap, you sow. And then you have these two turnings in verse 32 contrasted. The simple are killed by their turning away. And that is contrasted with what came before in 123 with turning toward wisdom's reproof. So, again, if we were to then zoom out and analyze this, this is talking ultimately about one's relationship with God. And to hear the rebuke and counsel of God to repent, humble oneself, become a disciple and student of God, a son of the Father, a 
uh, one who listens and receives the voice of wisdom. This is all synonymous with being a Christian, whereas those who reject this inevitably go from one degree of foolishness to another, and then when which all seems fine and dandy for a while, but when calamity comes, then the foolishness is revealed for what it is, pure foolishness. They've got nothing upon which to stand, and they are at a loss. When they turn to God in the day of judgment, it is too late. He's not there. So, once more then, we want to just remind ourselves that the book of Proverbs is about the faithful and the unfaithful, the way of the children of God and the way of the children of the world, and it's descriptive of these realities. (laughs) By nature, we are all children of the world, children of wrath, but wisdom has cried out to us, and we have turned to her. We have been baptized by Christ. We have been made sons. And thus, then, we see this motif where we pick up in the new material today, which is the second address to a son. So, father speaking to sons. Obviously, Solomon to his son, sure, why not? Us to our sons, sure, why not? But even more so, our heavenly father to us. Okay, that should bring us up to speed. Were there any remaining questions hanging out from last week? Hopefully straightforward enough at this point. At chapter 2, verse 1, then, again, this is the second address of 10, written to a son. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So, before we lose the forest for the trees, that verse 5, where we just concluded, should take you all the way back to chapter 1, verse 7, which has been the foundation of this text, that the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh, is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. And again, specified, then this is Christian knowledge, Christian wisdom. And here is the same. So, an admonition to um, receive the words, treasure up the commandments, Make your ears attentive and incline your heart to understanding. And then call out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. Seek it like silver. Search for it as hidden treasures. Then you will have it. Which, of course, sounds very much like Jesus. The first four or so verses sound like when he admonishes, Take care how you hear which is maybe something we don't think about enough as Christians. It may be a toxic byproduct of an otherwise good theology, which is that the word does the work, but then we simply say, okay, so it's enough for me to show up. On Sunday morning, all I have to do is put my derriere in the chair, and the rest is magical. The word just does the work. But it is interesting to hear our Lord himself say repeatedly, take 
care how you hear, and to be stirred up by these admonitions of wisdom, to treasure the commandments, to treasure those words we hear, to value them, to receive them. I mean, I think very concretely, even in the divine service, as the word of God is being read, how often do our minds wander and our hearts wander? So, wisdom cries out to treat these things like treasures and try to receive them as such. A few generations ago in Lutheranism, there was a general admonition that as people were hearing the text read and and or hearing the sermon preached on the text or a given text, one of the things you wanted to do would be to zoom in on one particular point and commit that to your memory and to your meditation for the rest of the day, minimum, if not the rest of the week. It is a way in which one can make concrete this exhortation to treasure the word or commandment of God. So even if the sermon happens to be all over the place, which sometimes happens, admittedly, uh, then you can at least grasp a nugget of God's word and grasp hold of a truth and heed it and treasure it. Okay, and then the latter half of this section reminds us, this opening of the father's admonition to a son, reminds us of where Jesus says, ask and seek and knock and the door will be open to you. And where he says, um, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, again, there is kind of a toxic byproduct of an otherwise good theology in this, parallel to the way we say, well, the Word does everything, therefore it's my job to just sit in church and not do anything. We see the error of that way of thinking. We then can see a similar error with, well, I know that I am just passively righteous. I just receive all my righteousness freely by grace for Christ. So through Christ. So, therefore... Um, any of this business about raising my voice or calling out for insight or searching for wisdom as for hidden treasures or seeking it like silver, that is all Pelagian or semi-Pelagian or synergistic. We've got all these bad words for why would I be, uh, why would I ever be active in my pursuit of these things? But again, our Lord himself challenges that. Ask, seek, knock. Seek first the kingdom of God. There is zero wrong with active language. We're encouraged by our Lord himself and, of course, by wisdom here in Proverbs um, to actively prepare our hearts and actively listen and then to actively seek and pursue and raise our voices for understanding. So, activity, good. Are we justified by this activity? Of course not. Whoever said that? But just because we're justified passively and apart from our works doesn't mean our works have nothing to do with anything. They have everything to do with everything. So that should be clear here in in this text, these admonitions um, that we want to actively engage with wisdom. With this promise at verse 5, then you will understand the fear of of Yahweh, hearkening back to 1 7. 
and find the knowledge of Elohim, of God. Just parallelism there. All right, so that's the first part. But again, this goes all the way through the close of the chapter. Let me pause there, see if you have any thoughts or reflections on this part of the address to the Son. Make sense? As I tell the confirmation kids, when you go to church, what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. It's just a fact. If you go there not interested in receiving anything, lo and behold, when you didn't receive anything. (laughs) But if you go there ready to receive, desperate to receive, willing to work and pursue, you're going to have what you desire and more. All right, look at verse 6. For the Lord, here Yahweh again, gives wisdom. So we're confronted with this truth once more that wisdom is not something we possess in and of ourselves. Wisdom is given from the Lord. He alone is wise. He alone controls all wisdom. He gives or dispenses wisdom. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, the yeshar, which also means righteous. So again, who are those biblically, whether we're in the Old Testament or the New, who are righteous? Those who entrust themselves to Yahweh and to the atonement in the Old Testament he is going to make through the Messiah, or in the New Testament that he has made through the Messiah. And this atonement makes us righteous or upright, and he has the, Lord, the same Lord who then makes this atonement and justifies us and declares us righteous, he stores up sound wisdom for us. Furthermore, he is a shield to those who walk in, the Hebrew is tom, or uh, integrity in the ESV, or honesty, or blamelessness. And that is a parallel to upright or righteous. Although it does give us um, pause as we consider blamelessness as a category because blamelessness frequently in the Bible is not the same as sinless. Blameless would be something closer to what we think of when we say in good faith. This person is conducting themselves in good faith. They're doing what any reasonable person would see needs to be done. Is it perfect? No. Is it sinless? No. But is it blameless? Yes. Uh, A good example of this, a concrete example of this, is in the admonitions of Paul to uh, the young pastors Timothy and Titus. In the qualifications of those who would hold the pastoral office, he indicates that these need to be blameless. Well, if blameless means sinless, we're going to have exactly zero pastors. (laughs) So blameless does not mean sinless, but blameless means conducting oneself in good faith so that anyone who's watching could say, yeah, okay, that's reasonable. This person's reasonable. They're conducting themselves reasonably. They're um, no worse than 
than the average, let's say. They're no worse than I. So that's, the, that's a kind of biblical concept of blamelessness and runs here as tome, integrity, honesty, or blamelessness. So he is a shield to those who walk in tome. And obviously that blamelessness for us as Christians includes confessing our sins. The, the question of whether or not one is a Christian is not whether or not one sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The question of whether or not one is a Christian is, are we in a state of repentance? Do we recognize our sin, confess it, and desire to do better? That's the test of walking in blamelessness. So he is a shield to those who walk in blamelessness or integrity, guarding the paths of justice. Here, mispot. You can see how um, the Hebrew just loves to use different words for similar concepts. So he is watching, uh, guarding the paths of mispot and watching over the way of his Hasidah, his saints. So this gets translated into Greek as Hagioi, or holy ones, saints, which we see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, as here in the Old, who are the saints? A select group of uber-faithful? No. All, all who believe and entrust themselves to Yahweh, all who believe and entrust themselves to Christ. We are all saints. We are all holy ones, made holy by the Holy One. Okay, and then of those, I mean, it's nothing wrong to single out people who have died in the faith and borne wonderful Christian witness and call them saints. And yet we can't mistake this as, well, that class of people, those are saints. I'm not a saint. That would be an error. We are all together saints. So again, once more from the top, I don't want to lose the forest for the trees, which I understand we're running the risk here. Verse 6, let's just get the full sentence. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and watching over the way of his saints. These are all promises about who God is and what he does for those who believe in him. Verse 9, then you will understand righteousness, uh, sadek, and justice, mispot again, and equity, wameserim, Every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And again, where do wisdom and knowledge come from? It's the Lord that gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge. That's verse 6. So God is going to speak his word and his wisdom. His wisdom will come into your heart and his knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. 
discretion will watch over you, and that's a word that means being able to render judgment, to distinguish good from evil. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Delivering you from the way of evil. And then, as has so often been the case thematically, we see another couplet, another set of two. There is here introduced the way of evil, which harkens back to verse 8, watching over the way of his saints. So there is the way of his saints and there is the way of evil. There are two ways. And these two ways bear themselves out in wisdom literature. We're going to see it recur through Proverbs through the other wisdom literature of the Bible, into the New Testament, and even into then the catechetical materials of the first century, where the didache, after which this hall is named, simply means teaching, one of the, I think it's the earliest catechism that we have on record, begins with the two ways. So, it is the Lord's word, by which he gives wisdom and knowledge, discretion and understanding. These are, through these he will be delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech. You can see that this is a war of words. What God says versus what man says. From men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness, yosher. So he had another different word. That's why engineers are good at Hebrew, because they just remember all these details. The rest of us mere mortals struggle. Who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. So now we have a modifier on the way of evil. We have the ways of darkness. And it's going to get more specific in verse 14. Who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. And it would behoove us to stop and pause there because there is an element of this that it's not simply utilitarian. Wickedness, the nature of wickedness is not such that it simply goes, okay, I desire or need or want X, Y, or Z, so I'm going to do that. There's something even more perverse that going contrary to what is good heightens the enjoyment and heightens the desire, the sinful desire. Um, a famous a famous take on this, I think, would be Augustine with his pear. Have you heard this story? He talks about the he talks about stealing a pear and not eating it because he was hungry, not eating it because he even really wanted the pear, but delighting in the very acts of stealing it and eating that which was forbidden. So, if you've ever considered ways in which you are tempted and um, the that and been willing to be honest enough with yourself, you can parse out a certain perverseness of your own fallen nature 
that delights in the rebelliousness of it, that delights in that surge of adrenaline and the heart rate quickening and the, I can't believe you're doing this, it's so naughty. Um, That kind of aspect um, here portrayed in the scriptures and diagnosed in the scriptures as, and I think very instructive because it's not just a utilitarian need. It's not just an itch that needs to be scratched. There's something more perverse and more deep. It needs to be antithetical to God. And in being antithetical to God, there is a kind of rejoicing in it. Of course, we see this in our culture all the way. And I'm not merely trying to say, hey, look at those sinners out there. But in our culture, we have seen a move from, hey, we want this to be permitted. We want this to be accepted. We want this to be normal. We want this to be celebrated. We want this to be rejoiced. You can see the progression from you know, the proverbial camel getting his nose in the tent. Oh, we just want to be accepted. And by the way, this uh, has its um, parallels in theology. Almost always this is how heresy begins. We want this view to be tolerated, to be considered. Well, it kind of sounds contrary to the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, but just consider it. Just leave it on the table. Maybe stop from condemning it. And from there it grows into the point at which it's rejoiced and celebrated and crucifying you if you dare speak (laughs) against it. So this is the pervasive nature of evil in the church and in the world. And it does not cease until evil is rejoiced in. And that is specifically the point of evil is um, rebellion rather than any amount of pragmatism. Does that make sense, that distinction? Okay. So again, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. And so now we have a deceitfulness. So what are we doing? We're contrasting the way of the saints with the way of the wicked. Look at the way of the saints. God is watching over it. God is guiding it in straightness and righteousness. Every good path. And the way of the wicked who have turned away from God, their ways are darkness, stumbling around, not knowing where you are or where you're going. Their ways are delighting in evil. Their paths are crooked and they are devious in their ways deceitful, calculated, and ultimately just leading themselves into further trouble because judgment's going to redound upon them. So in this letter from a father to a son, what is the point of the rhetoric? What is the point of this address? He's setting out before his son, look, there's this way or there's that way. And it is an invitation to go in the way of wisdom, not in the way of wickedness. To follow Yahweh, not forsake him. And so, in this sense, all the world can be simplified right down to these two different ways.
Let me pause there, um, just because it's, it's as good a place to break, and then we'll do kind of the final run through the chapter and through this address. Any questions, concerns, comments, anything resonate with you? I see a couple of hands in the back. Uh, so how we get to this is through uh, making our ears attentive, calling out for insight, seeking it like silver, searching for it. These are all active, like you said, active uh, works, I guess, or I mean, f- that come from our strength and our reason. Is that right? And so can, we, can you talk about how that fits into, you know, like Article 4 of the, of the Augsburg Confession that we don't receive justification through those things and that our church teaches that we don't. So how do we, can you speak to that seeming contradiction? Yeah, well, we can't forget that justification is a narrow question. Just The question of how one is justified is a narrowing of theology. It's not the whole picture of theology. Obviously, we want to be right on the narrow question of how one stands justified before the face of God, and obviously that was the controversy of the 15th century, but there were other controversies (laughs) in the history of the church, and other controversies have continued. We want to be right on each one of those controversies, but we also need to recognize that the whole is greater than any one of those controversies. So, if you look, for example, at verse 10... For wisdom will come into your heart. Now, if we were going to take our 16th century and present categories of justification and sanctification, we would say that justification takes place and has already taken place at this point. And then God is pouring out wisdom into our hearts. That transformation from being unwise to wise would be a matter of sanctification. Okay? So God grow, causing us to grow in wisdom, causing us to mature in wisdom. Does that make sense? So let me, help, let me see if I can, because like, I see, okay, how do we, let's just talk in strictly New Testament terms, how do we become sons of the Father? Correct, baptism. Baptism. That's how we become sons. Who baptizes us? The Father. We can't give ourselves new life or new birth, so we become sons by the work of the Father. We're entirely passive in that activity, just like we were passive in our own earthly births, right? You didn't have a choice in it. Um, It was done unto you. You were born, and so you have now um, been born from above by the power of God, okay? Now you're a son. Are you a son on the basis of anything you've done? No, you were baptized before you did a darn thing. So this would all be within the sphere of justification, right? But now as the Father trains you and teaches you and uh, challenges you and causes you to grow uh, not only intellectually but also physically, um, that's a growth and development. If you fail or succeed at that, it doesn't change your status as a son. So whether, in other words, no matter how sanctification goes, you're still a son. But because God loves you as an earthly father loves his earthly child... Our Heavenly Father wants us to develop and grow. 
Make sense? So there would be the distinction between justification on the one hand and sanctification on the other. Sanctification, there's an active participation. Again, think of this just in terms of the earthly relationship. My, um, my children were born passively into this world. They didn't sign up for it. They didn't do anything. I mean, they were kind of flopping around, I guess, but that's neither here nor there. And then they were born, and so that was entirely passive. Now they're my children, and from that moment forward, I've been engaging them so that they will become active in their own growth. Just because they're born as my children doesn't mean I go, oh, okay, uh, so you know everything I know. No, you've got to teach them. Just because they're born as your children doesn't mean they can do everything that you can do. So you begin to teach them. You begin to teach them how to pick their head up when they're laying on their belly. You begin to teach them how to babble and ultimately talk. You teach them how to walk and negotiate life. Ultimately, you teach them how to do sports, right? So you're constantly teaching them that they grow and develop intellectually and physically. So far, so good. So that's the parallel. That's sanctification. That's what our Father is doing for us even now. So as the kids, as the kids um, you know, as I try to teach them things, they have to actively engage. They have to do their homework. I can't do it for them. That defeats the purpose. Okay? They have to actively go play the sport and go to practice. I can't do them that for them. That defeats the purpose. So in justification, there's complete passivity. In sanctification, there's tons of activity. Participation in and with. And that's laid out for us. Like if you want, if you're, you know, you don't like the analogies, hopefully it makes it clearer. But if you don't like the analogies and you want to just get this straight from the source... Uh, go to Formula of Concord, Article 2, on free will. The first half of the article is how we have no free will in matters of salvation. The second half of the article is that once God has given us salvation, he has, in fact, set our will free from its bondage to sin, that we might cooperate with him in sanctification. So That's the Formula of Concord, Article 2, and if you want that formally lined out for you, I'd commend that to you. Was there another hand? Yeah, please. Yeah, I, I notice. Um, maybe this isn't that big a deal, but um, and you okay. may have covered this already. Uh, that the pat, the teachings here seem to come in pairs, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I call attention in particular to verse eleven. Says, I think the way you read it said, "Discretion will watch over you, and understanding will guard you." Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that's interesting about this to me, and maybe you can say something about it, in my translation, it's exactly the opposite. It says, discretion will guard you, and understanding will watch over you. So I'm wondering, is there is there variation in the text there, or is it, what's going on? And why does he choose this method of, is it just because it's very poetic to, to do this double teaching, or double, you know, repeated sentence thing, or, or what? Yeah, I mean, that's just his way. And it's the Hebrew way of parallelism and enriching an idea. And, a lot of old languages. Yeah, right, and, yeah. yeah, and sometimes you get a almost complete overlap, and sometimes the semantic domains stretch a little. But, I mean, that's all that's going here. As to, as to why they choose, in the one case, watch or watch over, and in the other case, guard, I don't see anything in the original language. I mean, these are, these are words that are hard to nail down. I think either could mean either. So I think that that's the discrepancy in the English. Um, 
Yeah. So as far as we can tell, the passage is about discretion and understanding and guarding and things. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a beautiful, like, kind of comfort here because these are put in the passive. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. You know, previously, the language has been active. We're to pursue these things or their parallels, their linguistic parallels. But now there is a passive aspect where they're watching over or guarding us. Yeah. But as to the specifics of why they're translated one way or the other, I think that it's, there, it's not technical or specific enough Hebrew words that exclude one concept over the other. Okay, uh, yes, hand up front here. And Yeah, uh, this morning, I think it was in Treasury of Daily Prayer, I saw something from Luther about how when someone comes to faith, they might think they did it, but then you have to let them know later that they didn't do it, that yeah. it was all from God. So I've heard pastors say that, you know, let them come to faith thinking they did it, but then clean it up later. Go to your pastor and clean it up later. Mm. You know, send them to the pastor. So they, I, I'd never heard Luther actually say that, though, and they, he, essentially he was saying that. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, we just, I think Luther's points well said that even in the language in Scripture for conversion, it's frequently put act in the active voice, that we, it, it's we who are believing. It's we who are trusting. But then, yeah, as you read the scriptures, it's, you find very clearly that faith is a gift, and that thing happening within you isn't of your own doing, but rather the doing of God, that faith is a gift, um, that we do not choose him, he chooses us. Even though we might experience that in our naivete as simply, I'm doing the choosing, I'm doing the believing, I'm doing the trusting. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which, too, we, you can parse out faith along these lines via Luther. Um, you have fides passiva and fides activa. Fides being faith. And you're not given two faiths, you're given one faith. Faith. And faith has a passive component that simply receives the declaration of God's graciousness to you in Christ Jesus. That's like, you can think of this as two sides of the coin. They're different, but they're the same coin. And one side being that passive aspect that corresponds to justification. You're simply receiving. The other side of faith being that thing that Luther calls uh, the living, active faith that is already busy doing before it's even been asked to do. That's fides, faith, activa, active. And in that active faith, that's particularly where we can find times in our life where it's strong or weak. Times in our life where we boldly confess and times in our life where it's more a murmur. Times in our life where we're willing to risk greatly on the basis of God's word and times in our lives where we're very chicken and shouldn't be and have been cowed by powers of the world. So that is probably the best place to put those scriptures um, because in one sense faith is faith. And you do have scriptures that speak of that. But in another sense, you have, you have um, scriptures that speak of faith being strong or weak, great or little. And probably easiest to conceive of that in terms of the active side of faith. Right? So anyway, yeah, I resonate with what Luther is saying. That's fine. I agree. No problem. Yeah, because he, he actually, in one sense, he called it a work, not a work. 
Yeah, interesting. Sure. And I, I sure. Just, yeah. I mean, yeah, because what's actually going on there to diagnose faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So faith has so the word has come in, converted that person. That has changed their heart, changed their mind, now they believe. And as soon as they say, I believe, that's actually the fruit of what God's already done inside of them on the basis of the word. You see, so we're going to distinguish between the planting of the faith, which is God's work, and the fruit of that faith, which is me saying, I believe, I choose, I decide, I whatever. And in that sense, we don't have to be opposed to any of that language as long as we understand that as a fruit of the faith that the word has already worked. Make sense? Yeah. It's, it's when people want to say, no, that's not the fruit, that's the thing itself. I've got to meet God halfway. That's where we go, hold on. Then materially, how do you get into heaven? Well, because I made a decision. How does somebody get into hell? Because they did not make a decision. So then, who's salvation up to? Not Jesus. You're accepting or you're rejecting. And that clearly then we're out of bounds. So you can see the problem there um, and why we rightfully critique that theology if it sneaks into the, the causal aspect. Yeah. Okay, I see what, a hand come up. Yeah, please. Faith comes through hearing, but then, as it says there in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, we have to make our ears attentive. Um, okay, and here it would be important to make a distinction that already we as Solomon's audience are in relationship with Yahweh. So he is speaking to us. I mean, this is the same with Christ, where Christ says, seek he isn't saying to a bunch of unbelievers, oh, hey, seek first the kingdom of God. <laughs> and then all these things. We're incapable of seeking as unbelievers. We're incapable of preparing our hearts as unbelievers, making our ear attentive, crying out for that which we despise. It's completely impossible. So we have to remember that, and this is true for so much of the scriptures, that Solomon's presumed audience is the faithful. We who have already entrusted ourselves to Yahweh, we who have our wills set free, we who have been given to um, bear much fruit and cooperate in our sanctification with him. And now we hear his admonition to take care how we hear and um, to seek after wisdom as if we were seeking after silver or treasure. And that is within our capability because we are his children set free. If, if this was said to an unbeliever, it would fall on de- deaf ears. It'd be like saying to a lame man, you know, hey, walk. And he'd be like, I can't walk. So you have to have that. Like now, if you said to a, like, that's where, that's where Jesus would heal the lame man, which would be parallel to justification. And then he'd say, okay, go about your business. And he's capable of going about, whereas before he wasn't. That's the fruit of the healing. Not the healing itself. Um, I mean, similar like when Lazarus is raised from the dead. It's Christ who raises him and Lazarus who walks out. Who gets the credit? Christ who raised him from the dead or Lazarus who walked out? The walking out is a fruit of his being quickened from the dead, you see? So, in all of these aspects, we can see the justification or passive aspect and the sanctification or active aspect. 
And again, this isn't, I mean, this isn't wild or novel. This is like Lutheranism 101. Yeah. And so it's good to reflect on these things. But I want to assure you, I'm not saying anything like remotely controversial here. And it's all, yeah, it's all through the Book of Concord. Please. Seems to me that uh, justification, you know, we're justified in belief and baptism. And it's a static thing. I'm justified. But as I live my life, just like you said with your kids, you're continually working in that justification and understanding things maybe a little bit more. God opens your ears to understand or to hear and understand. And it's a continual work of sanctification. Like the justification is, you know, I know I'm justified, but I also know I'm a sinner and I have to travel that road that he set before me, and it works sanctification. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the scriptures give us different ways to talk about justification, and they each hold their own reality and their own truth. In a sense, you can say all three things. I was justified. I am being justified. I will be justified. I mean, all three of those are biblical ways of speaking. Um, I was justified, and you could point to any number of ways in which you were justified already. Elected before the foundation of the world, Christ crucified for all, when I was baptized, etc. But you can also talk about, I am being justified, present tense. How so? I'm walking in repentance and the forgiveness of sins daily. That's, the, that's where we would even call like justification, in this sense, an ongoing reality. God continually justifying me, God sheltering me in his justification each and every day as I experience it through time. And then I will be justified is that sense in which when you finally do see Christ face to face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So all three of those are true. And in a sense then, I mean, you can do the same thing with sanctification. It has its parallels. If I belong to Christ, then I am sanctified. That is, I'm renewed or made new. I'm a new creature. That renewal is taking place each and every day. Concretely, what does that look like? Well, according to Luther, it looks like a continuous drowning of the old Adam and a continuous emerging of the new man, a daily reality. But there's also a a forward-looking sense of sanctification where it's complete as we are conformed into the image of Christ, which is the ultimate goal and project that God has in mind. Being conformed into the image of Christ is being conformed into the image of the human being, the man. And And that ties into that deeper theology that I've mentioned in here before, that we are actually becoming human. That is, we're becoming fully man as we're conformed into the image and shape of Christ. Christ who, as I'll preach in hmm, just a few minutes here, uh, Christ who has perfect love for God even when God forsakes him and perfect love for neighbor even when neighbor forsakes him. That's the image of God. That's the image of a perfect man. And that's what all the suffering and trial and duress and good and bad and the whole kit and caboodle is conforming us into the image of Christ in ways that God only knows, and we are along for the ride. This is the potter with the clay. Okay, anything else? 
Let's try to get to the end of this section. Verse 16 is a, an extremely important verse because it introduces us to the counterpart of wisdom, who is depicted, of course, here in the feminine. Verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. Now, as we're going to see, adulteress here is type and microcosm of idolatry. So, adultery, idolatry, one in the same. So, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. We've talked about having two ways, now we've got two women. Continuing in verse 17, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So this is marital language. Um, the companion of her youth is uh, her, the husband of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So what is this? This is, concretely speaking, apostate Israel. Those who have turned away from Yahweh and from the covenant that he has had with them. He has married them and made them his own, and they have turned away from this. Thus, she is the adulteress, and she wants to get you to turn away from him and turn to her as well. Now, an important point when you find people exploiting that wisdom is a female, and you think, oh, and they they want to exploit this in the direction of, okay, so Christ must be feminine. Uh, Well, interesting that here the adulteress is a female, And there's no accusation that Satan must therefore be a female. So you can see the game is up and it's being exploited and manipulated uh, to those ends. So wisdom the female against uh, the adulteress the female. Not the adulterer, but the adulteress. So we've got two women, one representing Christ and one representing Satan, if you want to be very specific about it. All right, 18, for her house sinks down to death. That is, once you step in the front door of the seductress and the adulteress, you have basically entered Sheol. You've basically sunk down into hell. And her paths uh, to the departed, namely the dead. So to walk into that door is to walk into death. And you can see how that's a departure from God. Not specific here that God is life and to depart from him is death, but clearly implied. Verse 19, none who go go to her come back. And the go to her clearly is um, idiomatic for uh, sexual relationships. So none who become her lover come back. Nor do they regain the paths of life. This is very much like um, Hebrews 6, where if you knowingly, willingly turn your back on Yahweh and engage with another lover, what is Yahweh going to do but come and say, hey, I'm back for you, and you're going to be like, yeah, I left you for this other. There's no way back. 
because the only way back is Yahweh, whom you hate and despise and have replaced with the other. So it's the same kind of logic in Hebrews 6, where um, the gospel and sacraments are likened to rain, and if that rain falls on the ground and doesn't bear good fruit, but if the rain falls on the ground and bears thorns and thistles, how are you going to be saved? By the gospel? Every time someone preaches the gospel to you, all you do is bristle up. You know it, you hate it, you reject it. In what sense is there hope for you? Well, God alone knows, but in the rhetoric of Hebrews 6 and in the rhetoric of Proverbs 2, uh, it is indeed the case that none who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Similarly analogous to the sin leading to death in 1 John 5. Okay, so verse 20, so you will walk in the way of the good. Tawabim. And keep to the paths of the righteous. Sadakim. In other words, walk in the way of wisdom. We're back to the two ways. Not in the way of wickedness, not in the way of the adulteress. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright, here it's Yashar, again, which we saw in verse 7, will inhabit the land. And you can see how this is covenantal language with Israel. And those with integrity, here a different word, Watemimim, will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. And that treacherousness paralleled with um, 14 and 15, rejoicing in evil, delighting in perverseness, crooked paths, devious ways, the treacherous, here in verse 22, will be rooted out of it. And that is, by the way, um, language of the new heavens and the new earth and language of the garden restored. Because that's the ultimate demise, is that the wicked are rooted out from the earth. They've already been rooted out from heaven. That's Revelation 12. And they're going to be rooted out from the earth, that these two might blossom and flourish anew. Okay, so very clear rhetoric um, from the Father to his Son. Look, here's the way of wisdom. Here's the way of the adulteress. Here's the way of, uh, here's the path of righteousness, and here's the path of treachery. Here's where one ends, and here's where the other ends. So, because I love you, choose the right one. <laughs> Do the right one, right? That's, that's essentially the rhetoric here. And again, the path of wisdom is not, just to speak in New Testament terms, the path of wisdom is not a path of sinlessness, Of course, we don't want to sin. But if we confess our sins, God is, in fact, faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the path of wisdom is the path of repentance and striving and doing all the things that God gives us to do before he brings the new heavens and the new earth. All right, let me pause and just see if there are any questions on that last section. Excellent. Okay. So next week we will pick up with chapter 3, the third address to his son. The Lord be with you.